Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful to come in this new year to your word. Uh, We're grateful for what you've done in the past and what you will do in the future through Jesus Christ. And Lord, please strengthen us. Please open our minds, our hearts to receive this word this morning that we might be transformed for the glory of Jesus. All for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Happy New Year, Orchard Bible Church. It's great to see you this morning. It's always exciting to turn the page and look forward to a new year of blessings and ministry from God's word. In our lives, especially when it can, coincides with a new preaching series that Ben mentioned begins today in the book of Ephesians, which, Lord willing, will take us halfway through the year to the end of June. And for a number of reasons, your pastors are confident that this will be a great word for our church. We live in interesting times, don't we, with challenges that are unique in some ways to our own day but also challenges that have faced believers for millennia. And one challenge today is the confusion over personal identity. So much confusion over what makes the individual, what is one's personal identity. And related to that confusion, I think, is bitter division that is so prevalent in our society. A division that's unfortunately made its way into the broader church and into the Christian community. It's grievous to see these things. And one of the great themes in this letter of Ephesians is unity. United in Christ, which is our theme for this series. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, is he's done something, a work of reconciliation. Uh, Certainly at a personal level in terms of our salvation, But the gospel is much bigger than us. Christ has done something at a cosmic level that we'll see in this letter, bringing all things under him in the fullness of time. Something that impacts spiritual forces still at work against us. And as this relates to our emphasis, all of this has massive implications for reconciliation within the church and our unity with one another in him. So, over the next several months, we aim to drink deeply from 
Paul's teaching about what Christ has done and what he continues to do for our salvation and our daily lives and how we love one another, how we operate in various relationships. I'll mention one of those relationships in particular, and that is the relationship between parents and children that we see in chapter 6. We're going to slow down during the month of May, spend a couple of extra weeks on that passage about parenting. And then right after that, in the month of June, we'll be doing a special weeknight series teaching and interactive sessions on this subject of parenting. More details to come, but for you parents, I at least wanted to whet your appetite for that. So just zooming out again to this letter in its entire scope, here's just a sampling of the high praise from prominent scholars over the centuries and what they have called Ephesians. The queen of the epistles, the grand canyon of scripture, the divinest composition of man, the crown and climax of Paul's theology, the greatest, maturest, and most relevant for our time. It's pure music. Jim Boyce writes that there's a certain irony about all this attention. He counts 27 key doctrines in Ephesians, but they're all basic to Christianity. There's nothing you wouldn't find elsewhere in the New Testament. So what's the fuss about? Here's his conclusion. Its profoundness comes from the fact that it presents the basic doctrines of Christianity comprehensively, clearly, practically, and winsomely. John Stott says it this way. The whole letter is thus a magnificent combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done through Christ and what we must be and do in consequence. Ephesians is essential then for new believers and seasoned saints alike. In terms of introduction of all the letters of Paul, this one seems to be the least situational. That is to say, there's not a specific problem necessarily driving his writing as we see in so many of his other letters. It's probably also a circular letter, one that was sent around to various Churches, Ephesus perhaps being the first or primary recipient. We learn from Acts that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. In particular, you might remember that great scene in Acts chapter 19, where there, there was an intense debate, an episode regarding the, the goddess Artemis, specifically the traders and silversmiths who financially benefited from fashioning her image. And when Paul taught that these man-made gods were no gods at all, it caused quite a stir. And if you remember, there was a riot where in that amazing scene, Paul is begging to get into the theater where these people were so upset at him. It's most likely Paul sent this letter, Ephesians, about 10 years later from a prison in Rome. Clinton Arnold summarizes the purpose of Ephesians this way. I'm paraphrasing here. Paul wants to affirm them in their new identity. See that key concept? Their new identity in Christ for three reasons. First, to strengthen them for their struggle with the powers of darkness. Second, to promote greater unity with other Christians. And third, to stimulate increasing transformation of their lives into holiness. 
So that's where we're headed. Now, this morning we'll be looking at the first six verses, which Ray read. And Paul begins with praise and celebration of the riches we have in Christ Jesus. And one striking theme in the verses today is what is called the doctrine of election. The revelation that Christians are chosen by God, verse 4, predestined, verse 5, to be saved. The elect, the chosen. God chose us long before we chose him. Now I want to say a few things pastorally right up front. First, this is a difficult doctrine. It's usually very puzzling, especially to a new believer, and understandably so. But also humbling to the most mature believer as well. And no matter what one's exact view on this may be, and there are various nuances, there will always be an element of mystery. Anytime we're dealing with the tension between God's sovereign actions on the one hand and human responsibility on the other, we're not dealing with an either-or, but a both-and. God's sovereignty and human responsibility go together in a way we don't fully comprehend. And we need to have the humility about our understanding of these things. If anyone claims to have figured it out, that's proof positive, I think, that they understand far less than they think they do. The second thing I want to confess to you is that I used to hate this doctrine of election. And a big part of the reason I hated it is that I was taught it by people who hated it. (laughs) So they were very unsympathetic to it, and they, they taught it in the worst possible light. So I thought, how could anyone possibly believe this? What I came to realize later is what I was being taught was actually a caricature of this doctrine and not the doctrine itself. I was not taught it in the spirit in which the doctrine is presented in the scriptures. And that makes a big difference. I mention these things because I know that some of you don't like this doctrine or at a minimum are confused by this doctrine. And I want to tell you that I understand that. I'm very sympathetic to that because I lived through that personally. We want to study this in the spirit of how it's presented by Paul. And one thing we will see is that Paul is praising God. This is very important. This is written as a source of great encouragement and comfort to believers, increasing their praise of God. So if this doctrine causes us to be discouraged or suspicious of God's character or to lament his sovereignty, that's an indication we've not understood what Paul is saying. Because understood rightly the way the apostle intended, should lead us to praise God and not lament, but rather take comfort in and rejoice in God's sovereignty. So I've framed each point in your outline around this theme of God's choosing. So number one, the evidence of God's choosing, belief and faithfulness. Let's look together in our Bible, starting in verse 1 again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. First, notice Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus, meaning he's a special authorized messenger from Jesus himself. Now why? How is he an apostle? By the will of God. Do you see that? 
It's not because he pursued it or he really aspired to be an apostle. He wasn't trying out for the apostle role and then finally got accepted. No, Acts tells us he was an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of this gospel, on his way to harm those in the church, and was literally knocked to the ground by the Lord. In some ways, this sets the stage for this theme. God's choosing is the way it's always been throughout history of God's people. God chose Abraham not because of anything merit-worthy in him. He was an idolater. God chose Israel not because they were better than the other nations. And God chose Paul, an enemy of the church, to be his apostle. So this apostle Paul writes to the saints, or set-apart ones, in other words, Christians, who are faithful, he says, in Christ Jesus. That's how the ESV renders this. Other translations say, who are believers in Christ Jesus, because the Greek could mean either. And certainly both concepts are true, aren't they? A genuine Christian is, not, is someone who not only believes, has put their faith in Christ for salvation, but is also faithful, committed to Christ, right? We saw this in Hebrews, didn't we? And throughout the New Testament, it's not just making an initial decision, but faithfulness, the kind of lifelong, enduring faith to the very end. That's what a Christian is, a saint. Now, I'm going to try to tease out these tensions that I mentioned and mystery in various points in our outline. But here I'll just say belief is a real choice to follow Jesus as Lord, to receive him as your Savior. We're not robots. We're not victims of some fatalistic drama. We exercise real choices, and those choices are eternally significant. Throughout the New Testament, it could not be more clear that the gospel call goes out to anyone who would believe. And you must believe. You must repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ in order to be saved, in order to become a Christian, in order to benefit from these blessings in Christ we see throughout this chapter. All of that is true. All of that is necessary. And this fact of a real choice, though, is not incompatible with God choosing you. In fact, it is the evidence that God has chosen you. Let me give you an illustration of this from a story in Acts chapter 13. Paul, the author of Ephesians, and Barnabas were preaching the word to the Jews in the synagogue. And these Jews were rejecting the message. <clears throat> Paul says to them, verse 46, Since you thrust the word of God aside... And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. It's a real choice. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. Now, Paul doesn't say, God didn't choose you, sorry. No. He says, we preach the gospel to you, as we do to everyone, and you're making the choice to reject it. So we'll see if some of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, will accept it. So they preached to the Gentiles, and some of them believed. And this is what we read. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And listen, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, there were some who had been chosen by God, appointed to eternal life, and they believed the gospel. Now, it doesn't say, because Paul and Barnabas knew that God had already chosen, they didn't put much effort into the preaching because what's the point? 
God is sovereign. No. They're putting everything they have into this preaching. Paul is constantly praying for and pleading with people to repent and believe the gospel and putting his life on the line to do so because that's how people get saved, okay? This is really important. If you want to understand the doctrine of election, you must see how the doctrine plays out in Paul's life, not just his teaching. So after they passionately preached to some, they preached to the Gentiles, and some people put their faith in Christ, after that happened, it's clear that those who believed were, in fact, chosen by God. So the evidence of God's choosing is really only seen after the fact. But note, it does not in any way undermine their efforts in evangelism or pleading with people to believe the gospel. So we must be careful never to get tied up in philosophical speculation and make unbiblical conclusions about these things. If this doctrine leads you to believe or think or behave differently, inconsistent with how Paul lived and what we see in the New Testament, questioning God's character or on the other extreme, minimizing prayer or evangelism, you've not understood it correctly. Okay, To be on the right track understanding this doctrine of election, we need to follow not only Paul's teaching, but his example. And again, if you can't fully resolve that tension in your mind, join the group. <laughs> and it really shouldn't surprise us that we creatures cannot fully comprehend the workings of our infinite Creator. So we see God's sovereign choice evidenced by belief and faithfulness. Number two, the benefits of God's choosing. All things spiritual. Let's read in verse two together. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Grace is mentioned 12 times in the letter. And note that grace and peace come from two persons, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to see all three persons of the Trinity in this opening chapter. It's very strong on the deity of Christ, right up front. Christ shares the Father's power and authority. The Lordship of Jesus is mentioned in every chapter and fleshed out in significant ways, not the least of which is his authority over the unseen spiritual world of principalities and powers. Now, regarding grace or unmerited favor, there's a sense in which God's grace comes to all people. Matthew 5, for instance, he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Regardless of your relationship with Jesus, God grants you the ability to take the next breath and to enjoy things under the sun in some measure. We call this common grace because it's common to all of his creatures. But there's another kind of grace that's different. A grace connected with salvation. And that grace he gives only to those he's blessed in Christ. Verse 3. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the Old Testament, there were many uh, blessings upon Israel 
many of which were physical in nature. The new covenant brings spiritual blessings. In verses 4 through 14, we will look at these this week and next. Election, justification, adoption, the forgiveness of sins, redemption, a future inheritance, the Holy Spirit. The list goes on. Over 200 Greek words strung together. The longest sentence ever found in the Greek language. Now, just because these blessings are spiritual doesn't mean they do not manifest themselves in the physical world. They certainly do. And we'll see these impact our human relationships, which was physical. We'll see that later on. But not physical blessings in this life, in the health and wealth, prosperity gospel sense. The blessings are spiritual in nature, which is to say they come by the Holy Spirit. And the heavenly places where Christ is already exalted. So God looks on believers as already exalted Christ. Now, we'll come back to this later. But see verse 3. Paul is blessing or praising God for this. Blessed be the God who's done this. One of my earliest memories of church as a child is singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what Paul is doing here. So again, if this causes negative views of God's character, we've not understood it correctly. Number three, the timing of God's choosing before creation. Let's read in verses four and five together. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Even as, in the Greek, is linking this choosing as an explanation for the blessings in verse 3. In other words, this is the reason these blessings have come to us. He chose and predestined us according to the purpose of of his will. And the timing of this choosing was before creation, before the foundation of the world. In eternity past, God had a purpose, and that purpose involved Christ, God the Son, and his future work on the cross. And it also involved us, believers. Consider that we were not yet created. His work of redemption had not yet taken place. If you're in Christ, this is a a marvelous thought. Before he said, let there be light, he had you in mind. It's phenomenal. In the 16th century, the Prussian mathematician and astronomer Copernicus published his famous model of the solar system, placing the sun and not the earth at the center. The earth revolves around the sun, not the other way Around And this was not popular at first. This was a revolutionary idea that we're not at the center. It flipped everything on its head. I think something similar happens with our human nature. We grow up instinctively thinking that God and the world revolve around us. We sort of evaluate what we want to do with God. What's our opinion of God? But the question is not, our evaluation of God, why would I want anything to do with God, but rather flips everything on its head, why would God want anything to do with us? It is revolutionary to understand that you're not at the center. We are hell-bound sinners 
who would never seek God on our own, Romans 3, but God seeking us. Yet again, it is important to remember we need to respond to the gospel. This is a real decision. We should not confuse, this is important, we should not confuse God's choice in eternity past with redemptive history being played out, with genuine prayer and evangelism, with the gospel genuinely presented to all people, to anyone who would believe, genuine decisions, genuine conversions. None of this throughout redemptive history, including our own day, including tomorrow if the Lord tarries, none of this contradicts God's election in eternity past. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a great famous American Bible teacher, often used an illustration, which I think is super helpful, to help people make sense of this doctrine of election. He asked them to imagine a cross, like on the one Jesus died, only so large that the cross had a large door in it. And over the door were these words from Revelation. Whosoever will may come. These words represent the free and universal offer of the gospel. By God's grace, the message of salvation is for everyone. Every man, woman, and child who, who will come to the cross is invited to believe in Jesus Christ and enter through that door to eternal life. On the other side of the door, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. From the inside, anyone glancing back can see these words from Ephesians written above the door, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's why God's choosing is best understood in hindsight. It's only after coming to Christ that one can know whether one has been chosen in Christ. Those who make a decision for Christ find out that God made a decision for them in eternity past. In my devotions recently, I guess it's it's been a few months now, I read this in Stephen Smith's commentary on Jeremiah. So we come to Christ... And then we spend the rest of our lives understanding how Christ came to us. If you're in Christ, he came for you. Number four, the location and agent of God's choosing in Jesus Christ. Listen for a pattern here as I read from verses three through six. The last part of verse three, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All these blessings come to us in Christ. This sits on another doctrine called union with Christ. When we're united with him in faith, we share all his blessings. Believers used to be in Adam. They're sharing Adam's life and the results of his sin. Now we are in Christ. Our status has changed. Sharing in the benefits of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This phrase in Christ or equivalent shows up 39 times in Ephesians. Lloyd-Jones says it this way. If you leave out the in Christ, you will never have any blessings at all. These blessings are all located in Christ 
Jesus. Verse 4 says, God chose us in him. He cannot choose anyone apart from Christ redeeming them. Christ is also the agent of choosing. Just like he's the agent of creation, as we see in John 1 and Colossians 1. All things were made through him. So also he's the agent of election. We're chosen in him, predestined through him. So we cannot disconnect our election from the person and work of Christ. Now some push this further and say that only Christ is elect. That believers were chosen, not individually, but as an unspecified group. Chosen only in the sense that we're now in him after we believe. This is called the corporate view of election. This view can be illustrated with people on a bus. Okay, like all believers are on a bus, and that bus is Christ. The corporate view holds that the bus was chosen. And everyone on the bus is chosen only in the sense that they're now in the bus. But the individuals were not chosen to be in the bus, but the bus was chosen. This is a great scholar, such as John Wesley, uh, many others hold, hold this view today. I used to hold this view myself and still think it's partly correct. Certainly it's true that Christ is the chosen one. We see this in 1 Peter and elsewhere. And it's also true that there's a sense in which the church is chosen as a group, the bride of Christ. But against this view, it also seems clear that we are also chosen individually. Verse 5, for instance, we see that believers were predestined for adoption. In other words, God predetermined that some would be adopted as his sons and daughters. Well, people are never adopted as a group, always as an individual. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it was because of God alone that we are in Christ. So chosen to be on the bus individually to continue that metaphor. So again, it seems our location in Christ individually was something God determined before time began. Number five, the goal of God's choosing, our holiness. Let's look at verse four. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What is the goal of God choosing us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Never presume upon God's election. Remember what we studied in Hebrews. No one will see the Lord without holiness. That's why Paul says later in chapter 4, Ephesians, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. We're not chosen because we were holy. We're chosen that we might be holy. We're elected to holiness. As Stott says, being chosen is an incentive to holiness, not an excuse for sin. If you're living however you want, disobeying God, that's not a sign you're elect. That's a sign you're an unbeliever or, at a minimum, a sinner who needs to repent. If someone feels free to sin because they think they're chosen, they're not chosen. They're not regenerate. They're not born again. They're not saved. Because verse 3 says, believers are chosen to holiness. His voice says, election to salvation and election to holiness go together. They're never separated. If we're not growing in holiness, we're not saved. We're still in our sins. 
And though Paul envisions this process of transformation to become holy, we're also chosen to be blameless before God on Judgment Day. This blamelessness comes because believers are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. His holiness is our blamelessness. Now, let's look at number six, the basis for God's choosing, his love. Into verse four, into verse, into verse five, in love he predestined us. Now, there's some debate to which phrase in love connects here because it could go with the previous phrase, we should be holy and blameless before him in love, or I think better and more natural, the way the ESV clearly believes it should be, be rendered, connected to the next phrase. In love, he predestined us for adoption. The basis of God's choosing has nothing to do with us. We do not deserve to be chosen because of who we are innately or what we've done. We can make, take no credit whatsoever for being chosen. It's unconditional. And note this, this is important. It's not a cold-hearted determinism or some kind of impersonal fatalism here. The context of his choosing is love. It's, it's not random or mechanical fate. As John McKay says, where love is supreme, there's no place for fate. Now, Paul does not address the more speculative or theoretical question we might ask, what about people he didn't choose? What about those who are not chosen to be adopted, who are not loved in this way? This passage doesn't touch on that question at all. Someone might argue, if God didn't choose some, then God's to blame because he didn't choose. But Paul does not draw that conclusion here or anywhere in the New Testament. The sinner always bears responsibility. So while it may not be philosophically satisfying to us, it's so important that we're careful not to say more than what the text teaches. Otherwise, we start contradicting other scriptures and promote a caricature view of God and his election that pushes people away from this truth. The fact is, God is not obligated to save anyone. And he is not obligated to love everyone in the same way. All analogies break down, to be sure, but if you're a parent of a child, perhaps you can understand something of this special kind of love. Just because I have a special love for my own children doesn't mean I hate other children. As Harold Hainer reminds us, if God had not taken the initiative, no one would have his everlasting presence and life. The real problem, Hainer says, is not why God chose some and not others, but why he chose any. That's the real question. And those he did choose, he chose because of his love, which results in number seven, the relationship from God's choosing, our adoption, verse five. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We see this choosing is in the context of a loving relationship as sons and daughters. Arnold says it this way, God not only chose us to be in Christ, but at the same time decided to bring us into a relationship with himself that could be best described by the metaphor of adoption. Through Jesus Christ, we have an intimate relationship with the Father. 
1 John 3, behold, what kind of love is this, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. This beautiful family imagery firmly counters any kind of caricatured view of predestination as cold and calculating fatalism. It's not that at all, is it? Jesus Christ is the eternal Son to whom all inheritance is due. Now we share in his blessings as children of God. One commentator explains, under Roman law, an adopted child acquired all the legal rights of a natural born child and was released from the control of his natural father. The child also received the adopting parent's family name and share in the status of the new family. We've already seen justification, even though I, didn't, I don't think I used the word, but this standing blameless in the courtroom of God, as it were, on Judgment Day. As Matt Smethurst says, justification gets us out of the courtroom of God, but adoption brings us into the living room of God. I love that. What intimacy and belonging and security. Such a wonderful truth. Finally this morning, number eight, the ultimate purpose for God's choosing, praise to him. Let's just read these verses together, starting in verse three again. Blessed, or praise be, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Listen to the great scholar I Marshall. Ephesians reminds us that for the New Testament writers, theology was expressed in worship. Studying theology should result in praising God. The ultimate purpose in all this is not about us. How could it be? It's all about him and his glory and his grace. And Paul cannot contain himself praising God. To him be the glory. John Stott reminds us this doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. It starts with God revealing these truths to us. It doesn't start with us conjuring up some theory. Here's why that distinction's important. And I'll just speak personally. I used to really struggle with this doctrine. It was, it was an unhelpful obsession, really. In hindsight, a big part of my problem, I think, is that I was viewing it as a man-made doctrine for me to evaluate, overlaying the scriptures instead of God's revelation from the scripture itself. If this were a man-made doctor by some philosophers in a room coming up with some theory, I would feel obligated to nail down every detail interrogating it until I fully comprehended it, which I could never do. But because this doctrine comes from God, I can believe it without fully understanding it. And there's a freedom that comes from that. Now, should we ask questions? Of course. Should we balance with other scriptures? Of course. Saying we shouldn't study deeply and always be refining our doctrine according to all scripture and our life. We should. 
And not just intellectually, again, but equally important, as I've mentioned, examining the fruit of our doctrine, the fruit of our belief in our lives. If our theology causes us to think or act in ways unlike the New Testament, if it causes us to be lazy in prayer or evangelism, for instance, or to be unconcerned about holiness, then we need to reform. We're on the wrong track. But we also need to have the humility to recognize, brothers and sisters, that we're the creatures, not the creator. And we have profound limitations in our understanding. And we need to be willing to live with some tension and mystery. And I I find freedom in that. Frankly, this mystery, in a strange way, makes God more attractive and worthy of worship. Think about it. If we fully understood God in his ways, he would be like one of us, not worthy of worship. To paraphrase D.A. Carson, perhaps for a God like this, it's less about him being fully understood than him being worshipped. And because he's blessed us, we bless him. We praise him. God's grace is glorious, is it not? This is our response as believers, verse 3, that God may be praised for all this. Worship him. Believer, he chose us. This is a great comfort to us. All praise to him because we never would have come without him. And now we can be secure because of this in our salvation. Listen to John 6. 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that comes, I will never cast out. Such beautiful words from Jesus and words that really encapsulate this whole mystery in that one verse, doesn't it? All the Father gives me, the chosen, the elect, they will come to me. They will believe. They will trust in me. And I, Jesus, will never cast them out. What great assurance. The great Dutch-American theologian Gerardus Voss says it this way. I want you to listen carefully to this comforting and at the same time mind-blowing truth. He says, do you know how a Christian knows that the Father will never stop loving you because he never started. Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. Before there was such a thing as time, he loved you. From all eternity, he predestined a special people, a prized possession in his beloved son, all for his glory. Sometimes you hear people of a certain arrogance or smugness about this doctrine. That's inherently contradictory. People who understand this truly should be the most humble people in the world to the praise of his grace alone. Let me return to where we started. What's the evidence you've been chosen? You believe. You respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then by the Holy Spirit's power, you then walk in faithfulness to him. None of this makes sense apart from your necessary response, which the scriptures make clear and to which I call you to do right now. Whosoever will may come, so please come. All who have already come 
have come in this very same way. And it wasn't by coming to terms with this mystery of election. No. It's to understand your sin. The opposition in your heart to God's rule over your life. Confess that sin to him. Confess that rebellious nature to him. And also confess that even the good things you do, and you may do many good things, they're not done for his glory. It's to repent, to turn to him. Turn to Jesus alone for your true goodness. He will be your merit. He will be your righteousness before God. He will be the location of all your blessings into eternity. It's all about him. Ask him for the forgiveness of all your sins. He's ready and able to forgive through his death of substitution on that cross and his glorious resurrection for sinners like me, sinners like you. Start this new year with a new birth. You can be born again. This gracious God will bless you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He will adopt you as his son, as his daughter. You can pray to him as your father. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit that you might live a new life, a different life, a life set apart for him and his purpose for you. That you might stand one day before his throne on judgment day, blameless, with no pride, no credit, no patting yourself on the back for figuring things out, but in utter humility, unworthiness, and thanksgiving, knowing at the core you were no better than anyone else who didn't believe, but you will be standing there with the rest of God's people, despite the filthy rags we once donned in our past, all of us standing there blameless for the exact same reason. We've all been clothed in the righteous garment that is Jesus Christ. In him, we will stand together, the chosen to the praise of his glorious grace. Please stand as we close. Our Father, we're so humbled by this truth this morning. We come before you in absolute unworthiness, thanking you for your salvation in Jesus Christ. We're so richly blessed to be in him now and into eternity. Lord, for those here who are not saved, I pray you'd regenerate their hearts this morning according to the purpose of your will, that they might be born again that they might confess their sins to you and repent and respond to this glorious gospel and be saved for the glory of Jesus. Amen.